Welcome to the Landscaping Podcast. My name is Joel Barnett and I'm your host. And today's episode is the 31st of the Instagram Lives that we've done. Got uh, nine questions in today. And out this week is pretty fascinating chat with Will from Wilden Design. So he's an English fellow who lives in Dubai. He's been there for uh, nine years and a landscape architect. So, uh, yeah, and got a pretty cool uh, philosophy about the way he designs things. So, that was a pretty cool chat with him. So that's out at the moment. Uh, the first question is from XXL saying, what gaps, if any, do you experience between designers slash designing and landscapers slash landscaping? A uh, pretty good question. So the first thing that comes to mind when uh, from a, a landscaper's point of view is uh, heights. So that's the landscape design specifying the heights. Um, so it's pretty, it's a tricky thing to work out. So understandable that when some people can't include it, but um, when you spend, when, like clients will be spending say twenty thousand dollars on a design, and the heights, for example, like it might have like a, an alfresco area connected to a few other areas, like a lawn and a pool area, and they're all listed as the exact same height, which is obviously nice if you're indoors where you can do that, but if you're outside, you need to have fall somewhere. So I think if you're paying for a design with that expense should specify the exact falls that you need to have everywhere and even what type of drains to have. Like we did a design that had a big concrete area and it didn't, it didn't say where it was supposed to drain or whether what sort of drain you were going to have because if you've got a big rectangle and you want it to fall to a drain point, it's obviously important specifying what type of drain you're going to have in that because you don't just want to get a black plastic lid type of drain. So uh, it'd be good if designers include that kind of detail and um, they'll go into the detail about what size pot to use for the plants and what it's you know height's going to be in 10 years and all that sort of detail but there's there's other little details which are more important um so they yeah, little things like that but a lot of designers aren't going to know that sort of thing unless someone tells them so you can't expect everyone to know everything because i'm sure that there are a lot of um gaps that a designer experiences from a landscaper's point of view as well. Uh, mostly that would just be doing pretty basic stuff like executing the design, how they wanted it done and how they've drawn it. So it's a pretty simple thing to do, but you'd be surprised how often a landscaper will do something different to what's on a plan and then that can change the look of a of a design. So it goes both ways, the miscommunications between the two. Uh, what other things would there be? Gaps between designers and landscapers. Uh, it could be the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The ability to be able to achieve some of the things they could design. So some things are very easy to draw, but when it comes to constructing, it's a completely different kettle of fish. So things like that. If if the designer, if you're not 100 percent sure if something is achievable. It's worth contacting a landscaper who you've worked with before and just ask the question before you submit a design like that. Um, and same deal with if if you're a landscaper and you're getting a design and you think, ah, oh, that's not possible, can't do that, rather than kicking up a thing, you contact the designer because they may have contacted another landscaper they know and found out that it is achievable and you just don't know how to achieve it. So they might have some advice for you on how you can go about it. So I think the key for Bridging any gaps between landscapers and landscape designers is communication. So that's the best way to go about solving that. 
Uh, Cascade Landscapes said, what's one thing popular in the industry that you hate? For example, I hate sandstone. It's racking my brain trying to think of anything, but I can't think of anything that comes to mind that I hate. No doubt there is. Excavation is one of those things, but that's not popular because no one likes doing excavation. Um, but yeah, I'm not a fan of that. But there's no, I don't think there's any pavers that I don't like that's popular. Like, yeah, a lot of the popular things I get get behind. I'm quite a sheep in regards to that. I don't have anything exciting going on that I can't with myself. Um, I wasn't initially wasn't a fan of the um, natural kind of native looking gardens, but now I am. So I've come around to that. Um, so yeah, it's not not a big hater on popular things in the industry because I like too much about the industry, but um, it'd be tough if you don't like sandstone being in New South Wales because of the amount of sandstone that's available up there, uh, and it'd be the same for bluestone in Victoria, limestone in WA. Um, yeah, I can't think there's nothing. Even like red brick pavers, I like to like using them occasionally as well. Um, no plants that I'm that unfond of that are the popular. Um, possibly using gravel. I think gravel gets used a bit too often to save money. Like for example, down the side of a house or done a few driveways with it as well. But uh, it's not. It like it gets stuck to things and like it's gets stuck to your shoes and like it's definitely the cheapest option, but it is for a reason. And you can't put gravel in and think it's going to behave like concrete. So there will be slight movement in there. There is going to be um, bits of gravel getting stuck to your shoes and tires and potentially blown, like step, like also st- um, if there's steppers around it, it will get blown or stepped onto the steppers and then there's gravel on that that can be slippery so i think the overuse of gravel paths could be something that i'm not a big fan of Uh, mitchell saul landscape said how do you deal with stressful situations in business Uh, mostly by not dealing with them and then they eventually go away because a lot of the things that i can get stressed about aren't that big a deal so uh, it's good to sort of sleep on things and understand that a lot of things you can get quite worked up about aren't that big a deal and there's always there's a solution to every problem so it usually just takes time or money or effort so uh I, yeah i think i mentioned it in the chat with cam just on the recent podcast uh last week like they had one there was one morning i was uh, i woke up pretty early like 2 30 or 3 o'clock and i was freaking out about um some how i was going to pay some bills and then I looked then so I didn't sleep well that morning and then when I got up I looked up the amount of invoices I needed to send out and there was three times the amount of value in the invoices I needed to send out than there was uh payments need to be made so um yeah just know that if you do come across a stressful situation that there will be that 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 situation will pass eventually so you might have to knuckle down for a couple of weeks or months to to get past it but uh, it was something my mum told me when I was I think I was 15 and just hating school more than I could possibly think and it was just the worst thing in the world and she said that there'll be a time eventually that 
it would just be a memory. So there will be a time when you're not going through the bad times. Uh, and that was what I want to That was uh, 25 years ago. So she was right. That is just a memory now. So, um, yeah, stressful situations and any negative situations are just temporary. Uh, and if you can't work a way, work out a way to get around it yourself, just reach out to someone and ask for some advice because uh, a problem shared is a problem halved. Uh, Peter Donigan said, what is the worst anonymously asked question you've ever asked? Now, I haven't actually done any yet. I did say at one stage that if you ever hear an anonymous question and then I say that that was a great question that was from, from me, but I've been lucky enough that we get enough questions that I haven't had to do that yet. Um, and I never have never come up with any, any good questions anyway, so uh, I, don't, I haven't put any in yet. So I haven't asked any worst questions yet, but they they will come eventually, I'm sure. Uh, Tom Lynch said, "How many hours do you work on weekends? Whether it's on the tools, or book work, or quotes?" Uh, it's a good question because oh, it's a it's a tricky question because it's not a a common number. Like sometimes I'll do. So sometimes I'll work on site on Saturdays. Other times, like a lot recently, I haven't done any Saturdays for a while. Been doing some concreting at home. Um, but I would say the minimum I do would be three hours at a guess, three or four hours. But that does include doing the podcast episode, like editing the podcast. So that, that takes up probably two and a bit hours at least a week. So, um, but... I do that before the family gets up and after they go to bed. So it's not, uh, it doesn't need into any family time. So yeah, it, it's the times when I do work is when, yeah, we're not going to be doing anything else anyway. I don't, uh, live our life around work. It's the other way around. I work around living our life. Um, and it's a lot easier to do that when you're more, uh, established in business, like when you're in the first, you know, three to five years. Of the business, you just got to work your ass off and make things happen. And sometimes you don't want to work on the weekends, but you just have to to get things done. Um, but then once you get more established and more experience and uh, get better at running a business and quoting properly so that you're making money, then you um, then you can have a bit more flexibility on on when you do have to and not have to work. Um, and then some people actually even don't even work Fridays, let alone the weekends. So, but again, it's if you're Someone who freaks out about working on weekends just don't work on weekends. Uh, all the work will wait, but I'm not someone who it bothers me too much. It doesn't eat away at me. Uh, a lot of the times when I've got stuff I need to get done during the week, like book work, I'll think I'll do it on the weekend, but then the week comes around, I can't be bothered, so I don't do it, and I just do it on the Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, whenever you can next get to it. So uh, yeah, don't stress too much about stuff you don't get done on the weekends, but because uh, you can always get up early in the morning if you want to. It depends on what type of person you are, if you're a morning or night person, but I'm uh, very much a morning person. So I could do an hour and a half of work in the morning and I'll get the same amount of work done, like probably three hours on the weekend. So you're just a lot more efficient first thing in the morning than I am anyway. So, um, yeah, do what's best for you. Sanctum Landscape said, what's the best way to cut porcelain pavers? I've only done one job with porcelain pavers, and we just used a, I think it was just a brick saw, just a wet uh, brick saw. But I think I've probably used a grinder with it as well. But 
both times it's like it's an extremely hard product to cut. So there's no, it's not like there's a special uh, diamond saw blade or anything that's going to make it easy to cut. It's it's a very dense material and it's twenty mil thick, so you can't just snap it like they do with um, tiles. So it's um, yeah, just take your time with it and make sure that like a lot on the packaging on a lot of the um, the saw blades, it'll say it'll have a list of what. It can what it can and can't be cut with and what it's specialised for. So uh, a lot of time there'll be a tick if it's suitable, a cross if it's not suitable, and a double tick if it's ideal for it. So just find the right blade for that and just be patient with it as well. Just know that it's a really dense material, so it does take a long time. Shane O'Brien 5 said, just giving Ashley James and Dan Foreman their weekly airtime, and I can now confirm officially that Dan... Foreman has the Jamie Jury rig covered. So Shane actually sent me a couple of images, which are just insane to see, of Dan Foreman with his shirt off, flexing, and it is I, – I the, the head was cut off, so I'm not 100% sure it was him because he had a six-pack and he definitely did have Jamie Jury's rig covered. So uh, that is actually a good time if you um, – because 99% of the people who listen to this will be hearing it on the Thursday, uh, which means that the – Melbourne Home Show is on this weekend. So you could, if you're curious and you're there, you could possibly ask Dan to lift his shirt up. I'm sure he might do that at the Melbourne Home Show and show that he does have Jamie Jury's rig covered. Um, but if you don't want to do that, still a good idea to go to the Home Show, which is on this weekend. There's heaps of, um, heaps of good designers and landscapers and plant nerds are there. Uh, Dan will build a garden as well, so there's something good, something good to look at there as well as some other bits and pieces to you know, to learn about the home show. So, yeah, if you go into the – and it's free to go to, so nothing to lose. And it's at the, and then there's a Melbourne – there's a Sydney and Brisbane one later in the year as well. Um, but the Melbourne one is on this week, and you can go onto the Melbourne Home Show website. And I think it's called the Greener Living Space or something like that. And then you can um, – you can once you click on that on the Home Show website, you can see uh, who's talking about what day. Uh, it would. It might still say that I'm going there, but I'm not going to be there because uh, you had me down on a Sunday, which is when. So I think it's the landscape. I think on the Friday, a lot of is a lot of the um, a lot of the suppliers talking, the suppliers who are supplying materials for the the garden that Dan built, designer built with some other fellas. And then Saturday, I think they're mainly landscape designers, and then Sunday is the landscape construction people. Uh, and he had me down on the Sunday, but. No, my son's got soccer, so I won't be there. Two Cups Camping said, what's the best sign that it's time to strip formwork for trout finished concrete? So I'm only in the early days of, of uh, learning that myself, but I've found, and it'll be different for every person, but I've found when, when I think it's ready to go, oh, I need to wait longer, so you just need to be more patient. It's obviously going to also depend on what time of year. Like at the moment, it's winter, so... It's going off a lot slower. Like I've been doing a couple of pours and I'd start the pour at like 7.30 in the morning. I've been, I've been hand mixing them though. And then I could, I'm still finishing troweling at after 5 o'clock. So it takes a hell of a long time. Uh, and the more you trowel the top of it, the slower it is to go off. So um, that's also something to keep in mind as well. It's good if you've got something else to do. And you're not just sitting at home looking at it at the window like I have been because then you just go out there and think, oh, I'll give it another trail, and then it just takes longer to, to go off. But, um, yeah, you just know from experience, it's not there's no 
uh, magic time or magic thing to look for to know when it's ready to strip the face. Uh, you just got to know from experience. So the first one I ever did was way too early. So when I was trailing the face, it was just pushing up the concrete. So made it easier to cover up any holes. That's because it was too wet. So it's usually a fine balance because when you take the formwork off, there'll be some little air holes there. So you want to take it off early enough that it's still wet enough that you can um, massage that to get rid of the holes, but not too wet that it moves the concrete when you're doing that. So, uh, yeah, it's tricky timing, but that's why it's uh, a skilled thing to do because not everyone can do it. So, yeah, the best thing to do is to and – like, and like I said, I've done the – the, the pores myself in terms of mixing it. So I've got the sand cement and aggregate and mix it all myself. So you don't need to do anything fancy. You can just, um, make a, make a, a square box, like 300 by 300 or something. Um, just make one of them and fill it with concrete and then have a play with that. And obviously the thicker the concrete is, the slower it's going to be to go off. Also the substrate makes a difference. I did one of my pores on top of the concrete porch. So there was nothing, there was, um, no, you know, crushed rock or anything underneath it. So it went off a lot slower because there was nowhere for the moisture to go. Uh, so it all had to come up through the top. There was nothing sucking out the moisture from the bottom. So the substrate is going to make a difference. So if you're using plastic underneath, that'll slow it down as well. So it's good to do those things in summer uh, to put plastic underneath and make it slower so that it's not – because if, if the quicker it dries out, the quicker it's going to crack. Um, but, yeah, just set up some formwork and then start practicing. That's the best way to understand how it's going to feel before it's ready to go, before it's ready to strip. And the last question for tonight is from Matt Minchin. He said, can I lay crazy paving on a compacted road base and mortar bed, or does it have to be on concrete? Uh, you certainly can, but it depends on what type of finish you're going with and what situation it is. So if you do it on a crushed rock base or road base and mortar, the only thing you can't do with great certainty is uh, grouting that, like using a cement grout. You could use because there's going to be some slight movement, so that any slight movement is going to crack the grout. The, the pavers you might not notice the pavers moving at all, um, but because the because two different pavers are going to be moving at slightly different um, moments, the the thing that connects those two, which is the mortar, uh, sorry, the grout, that's going to crack. So you could use like a, if you've got some tight joints, you could potentially use like a pave lock, paving sand if it's got the, the silica in there so that it kind of sets. Um, or you could use, if your joints are bigger, you could go with like a fine gravel in between it. That, but, um, but, yeah, so it's a bit tricky. But uh, if you're doing steppers, absolutely no need to do it on concrete. Um, if you're putting plants in between, like a dichondra or a, some type of ground cover, you can um, definitely do do it on uh, crushed rock. So depending on the situation, there there's been times when I've seen it done on a crushed rock, and it was um, grouted as well, and there was no cracking. So it is possible to do that without movement, but you're obviously going to get a lot more chance of movement if you're doing a crushed rock base than than concrete. So um, yeah, I definitely recommend that. But uh, it also, yeah, it depends on the the position that's going in. Like if it's down the side of the house, 
you could just do it on a uh, crash rock base and put gravel in between potentially. But yeah, again, it depends on the size of the joins between the pavers. Uh, that was the last question for tonight. So thank you very much for everyone who submitted a question. Um, and as I said, don't forget to head down to the Melbourne Home Show this weekend. I think the 25th, 6th and 7th. Uh, and Will from Wild and Design is, is this week's episode and it's a fascinating fella. So, yeah, thank you very much, everyone, again, and we'll talk to you soon.